Welcome to the Metaphorist's Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This month's story is The Cold Inside by Vanessa Fogg. Vanessa Fogg dreams of selkies, dragons, and gritty cyberpunk futures from her home in Western Michigan. She spent years as a research scientist in molecular cell biology and now works as a freelance medical writer. Her fiction has appeared in Lightspeed, Podcastle, Giga Nautosaurus, Neil Clark's The Best Science Fiction of the Year, Volume 4, and more. She is fueled by green tea. Find her online at www.vanessafogg.com. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A-F-O-G-G.com. Or on Twitter at FogWriter. Let's jump in. Anna's frightened when the ghost girl first knocks at her door, a hard, frantic hammering in the still of night. Anna's alone at the lake house, surrounded by forest and water, the nearest neighbor a quarter mile away. That's why she and her husband bought the place. The splendid solitude, the embrace of dark pines, the view from a bluff that leads down to a private rock-strewn beach. They could retire here, Brian said, and Anna had imagined that retirement, still a good decade or so off coffee on the deck, the lapping rhythm of waves, the dazzle of light on the water as they had toast and eggs. They would hike in the nearby state park and buy fruit from roadside stands. They would spend time in the nearby charming small town with its boutiques and restaurants and gelato shop, with its single bookstore housed in a historic refurbished log cabin and filled with an eclectic selection of books and gifts. Perhaps Anna would join the book club hosted by that bookstore. She and Brian would join civic groups, In their leisure years, they would become part of a local community, as they had yet to do during their busy city lives. And each night, they would have this retreat, this cottage perched above Lake Michigan, this piece of miraculously undeveloped shore, forest and dunes and the light off the water, the lake's subtle tides and underlying music in their lives. Anna and her husband bought the place together, but now she's here alone. The knocking comes again, harder. Anna runs to the door, peeks out through a side panel of glass. There's a woman on the porch, a young woman, a teen. She's soaking wet, a white dress plastered to her skin, dark hair streaking down her back. In the porch light's golden glow, triggered by the property's motion detector, Anna can see the girl's trembling blue lips. She throws open the door. The Woman in White is a figure of ghost stories worldwide. Here in this northern stretch of Michigan, we have our own version. It's said that on a chill spring night, a teenage girl argued with her boyfriend. He broke up with her, just before a school dance or party. Distraught, she drove home alone and took a curve too fast. She plunged off the highway, off a high bluff, and into the cold waters of Lake Michigan. Her ghost haunts the region's lakeside communities, knocking on doors and trying to flag down cars on the road. She's always dripping wet. Beware of touching her. Be especially wary if you're a young man. She's cold and still angry, and she's seeking warmth. From Haunted Tales and Legends of Lake Michigan's Shores, Storm Bay Press. In the space between turning away to grab a blanket for the girl and then turning back, Anna finds the girl gone. 
In the entranceway is only a puddle of water, slowly spreading across the hardwood floor. Anna is often cold. Brian used to tease her about it. He was warm, so warm. She wore sweaters, wrapped herself in blankets, and snuggled hard against him in bed. Her head tucked into the space between his neck and shoulder, the softness of flesh, the hardness of bone, his warmth warming her through. He sometimes tossed off the covers at night, but he never complained when she pressed against him. His arms curved around her waist, pulling her close. Bare skin on bare skin. The warmth of breath. She fell asleep to his even breathing, the rise and fall of his chest. And now he's gone, and there's nothing that can warm her. She has a weighted blanket. She piles her bed at home with pillows, heavy, body-length pillows on each side of her, enclosing her. Nothing helps. She has one of his old shirts. She holds it, presses it to her cheek, buries her face in it. She pretends that it still smells of him, even though she knows that the scent must be long gone. She didn't bring his shirt to the lake house. She tells herself she doesn't need it. It doesn't smell of him. That in the house by the lake, the place he briefly loved, she'll be able to sleep without it. She wakes from confused dreams, the blankets twisted around her, a memory of cold water, the beach at night, a lighthouse in the distance. She thinks she was calling someone's name, shivering from cold, sirens blaring on the highway above. She walks into the kitchen and sees it, the blanket she tossed on the floor the night before to soak up the puddle. It's still damp. There was a girl here last night. It was real. Numbly, Anna gathers up the blanket, tosses it in the laundry to wash later. She doesn't want to think of it. A girl wandering the woods and lakeshore, knocking on doors, gone in an instant. Anna makes coffee, hot and black and strong. Mechanically, she scrambles eggs. Only after does she remember the security camera, the one Brian set up last summer. Anna doesn't have the security app on her phone, so she has to log into the company's website to see the footage. She watches the porch light turn on, sees herself open the door, but she opens the door to no one. Brian mentioned the ghost girl once. Anna remembers it now. An offhand remark. They say not to drive too late on this road, not in the spring. He was smiling. He didn't believe in ghosts, of course. It was just a bit of local trivia. He'd summered in the region as a kid with his family, heard some stories. A local urban legend. Broken heart, car crash, death. He didn't mention it again. It never came up when they bought the house. Thinking back, Anna can't remember where on the highway they were when she heard the story. They drove up and down the coast on their summer vacations, exploring the little towns, beaches, lighthouses, parks. But in all their time together, they'd never come so early in the season. Now the beech trees are bare, the lake cold and gray. Businesses in the nearby town still closed, vacation homes empty. There was a different emptiness in the city. The crowds streaming past her in the streets were filled with busy strangers, all walking briskly and engaged in their own purposeful lives. In her house, Brian's absence ballooned to fill every room. Anna had tired of it. 
She'd wanted to be alone and lonely in a different place. By the water, under open sky, among bare trees and pines. To feel Brian's absence differently. His loss might have a softer presence here, she thought, spread throughout water and wood and sky. She found herself clenching the wheel hard as she drove out of the city, tension and ache in her jaw. She loosened as the countryside opened up, as the miles stretched ahead, as the lake finally came into view. But when she opened the door to this silent, dark cottage, the grief hit her, a sneaker wave from a seemingly calm sea, knocking her off her feet, ripping away her breath, pouring in and through her in an endless flood. He was only 52. She keeps thinking this over and over, even all these months later. When she first met him, they were in their 20s, and she thought 52 ancient, an unfathomable age, the age of parents and professors and bosses. Old. And now 52 is young. Far too young. Too goddamn fucking young. Jenny of the Lake, she's called locally. She's been blamed for a string of purportedly mysterious deaths since the 1960s. A teen boy found frozen on the beach. Another who drove his car into a tree. A young man who never made his way home after a party and was found dead in the woods. Perhaps the most disquieting cases are those of men found dead in their own homes. They either lived alone near the lake or their families were away for the night. They were reportedly all in good health. And though there were no clear signs of foul play, they were found stiff with cold, even though they died in warm rooms. My friends and I all knew these stories growing up. Don't open the door to Jenny, we said. It was a game among us, to ring a friend's doorbell and then hide or run away. Don't open the door to Jenny, we'd say as we ran. Recollections of Jack Dykstra, age 66, from the article Rural Ghost Stories of the Midwest published on the website Modern Folklore. Anna drives into town. For once, after the disturbance of last night, she doesn't want to be alone. She orders a meal at one of the few places open. There's a scattering of local customers at the Blue Mitten Grill. Two men at the bar, a few occupied booths, a harried mother scolding her young children. Anna orders a sandwich and fries and eats without tasting a thing. She lingers over a drink refill she doesn't need, watches as a family of four walks in, as the waitress flirts with a customer. Have any of these people met the local ghost? What do they know? Anything else I can do for you, dear? The waitress asks her. Anna doesn't know how to bring up the ghost. She doesn't know how to talk to people. Not anymore. She feels like a ghost herself, watching the living people in this restaurant as though through a thick pane of glass. No, Anna says. I'm fine. The knocking comes again that night. Anna's been waiting for it. Curled up on the couch trying to watch TV, yet not registering anything at all. Even though she expects it, the first knock makes her jump. She clutches her blanket to her. Holds still as the hammering comes again and again. The ghost eventually gives up. Goes away. Anna stays where she is and her heart keeps hammering long after the ghost's knocks have faded. She doesn't check the security footage this time. She doesn't want to see, or not see. 
Daylight lasts longer these days, but there are still traces of snow in the woods, little mounds and streaks of dirty white, even as green shoots push up from the earth. Anna's still cold. That hasn't changed. She's turned up the thermostat, built up fires in the fireplace, taken long, hot showers and baths, wrapped herself in her bed comforter. She puts on every layer she has when she goes outside. The cold is in her bones. It doesn't leave. Lady and White ghost stories have common themes of abandonment, betrayal, and loss. There's almost always a tragic love story involved. The ghost sometimes loses her lover to mishap or war, but more often he cruelly leaves her. She returns to the scene of her grief or death, pacing the widow's walk of a stately old manor, haunting the backstage of an abandoned theater, materializing in the bathroom of the girl's school where she hung herself, or walking the stretch of lonely highway where her car ran off the road. She's usually a sad, passive presence, a vanishing face in a window, a hitchhiker disappearing from the back seat when the driver turns around. The story of Lake Jenny is an unusual example of the genre in that she isn't just a passively mourning spirit, a wistful figure in white. She takes on elements of a classic vengeance spirit. Her grief is rage and desire with dire effects in the mortal realm. In her grief, she seeks and actively takes life from the living. From Vengeance Spirits and Ladies in White, A Cross-Cultural Analysis of Female Ghosts by Allison M. Lee in Journal of Global Folklore. Anna spends most of the next day on the deck, staring out at the lake. Gray water under cold, gray skies. She lets the water, this vast inland sea, fill her sight. She lets her mind empty into the white-tipped waves, into the space where the water meets sky. Her hands are numb when she finally stands, her whole body stiff. She makes her way down to the beach. A flash of memory. Bright sun, blue skies, and Brian turning over rocks at the shoreline, hunting for Petoskey stones, the state rock of Michigan. She can almost see him bent over in the water, the back of his neck reddening in the sun. She can almost touch him. They collected rocks together, piling them in little cairns on the beach, displaying them in glass containers. The glass containers are still here, sitting on shelves and on the kitchen table of the beach house. The little beach cairns are gone. She feels hot tears on her face. The wind is blowing. He's not here. He's not here, and all she wants is to hold him again, to see him, touch him, feel him, talk to him, tell him about the past few days, tell him everything apologize yet again, fling herself against him. She's cold. She's so cold, and she misses his warmth. There's no knock on the door that night. The ghost has given up, Anna figures. The ghost is knocking on other doors, haunting other houses, walking the highway or beaches and dunes, alone. Over the next few days, the earth and air warm even if Anna doesn't. The sun breaks free. New green springs up from the forest floor, the understory leafing out beneath still bare trees. The last traces of snow are gone, and birdsong fills the world. The sky is clear, and in its brilliant light, Lake Michigan turns Caribbean blue. The ghost is gone, 
Anna should be relieved. Instead, the hollowness in her chest only feels slightly bigger. She spends an afternoon at the bookstore in town. Since Brian's death, she's had trouble reading for pleasure. Still, the presence of books is comforting. The shelves of stories around her, the heft of a book in her hands. She finds what she was looking for. She takes it up to the counter. Ah, the owner says crisply as she rings up the 10th anniversary edition of Haunted Tales and Legends of Lake Michigan's Shores. That's a classic. Has a few stories from right around here. Lake Jenny, Anna says, and she's surprised at how small, how childish her own voice sounds. That's right. The store owner gives her a second look. She's a rather severe-looking older woman, gray hair pulled back in a bun. Anna doesn't think the other woman remembers her. She and Brian visited the store only a few times last summer. Last summer, the first season that they owned their first vacation home. Ginny is a sad story, the other woman says now, thoughtfully. Her demeanor has softened. She's something of a boogeyman around here. Something to scare kids with. But I always felt sorry for her. Anna nods. Me too, she says. Jenny doesn't return, but Anna can feel her out there in the darkness, wet and freezing and desperate, searching, looking for a lit window in the darkness, an occupied home on the empty lakeshore, some sign of welcome or life, an open door, an outstretched hand, any offer of warmth. Anna was especially cold last autumn. Half-heartedly, she told Brian to stay away, to not kiss her. He didn't listen. She didn't expect him to. She didn't want him to. They never took particular care to avoid one another when sick. I'll just get it too, Brian shrugged. Colds and flus. It wasn't really a big deal, was it? They still held each other, slept in the same bed. Brian would grumble about the bunched-up tissues that she would leave scattered around the house and clean them up. They would make each other soup. This particular flu was the worst she'd had in years. A sudden headache, falling on her like a crushing stone, and then the bone-deep chills. Her skin was hot to the touch, feverish. Her insides were ice. She whimpered, snuggling into her husband's warmth. He held her from behind, spooning with her in bed, the heavy comforter piled on top. She couldn't get warm. He held her. He held her, one hand stroking her arm, her hair. She leaned back against him. In an aching, blurred landscape of pain and cold, he was the only warmth. She shivered and froze until she slept. It was only the flu. The doctors verified this later. They'd both had their flu vaccinations. They were both in good health. Sometimes the vaccines aren't a great match for the circulating strains. A doctor friend once explained it to her. The science of how researchers try to predict which strains to immunize against each year. Brian seemed to be getting better with his own bout of flu when his fever spiked. A deepening cough. Chest pain. Bacterial secondary infection. Pneumonia. Then sepsis. She should have gotten him to the doctor sooner. Insisted on it. A prescription of antibiotics would have stopped it if they'd just gone in time. She should have urged him to get Tamiflu before the influenza. The first infection 
could even take hold. She should have stayed away from him, not let him get sick in the first place, locked herself in the guest room, refused to let him touch her, cuddle her, hold her. It's okay, he said, holding her. You know you're contagious before symptoms even show up, don't you? You've probably already given it to me. Survivor accounts of Ginny are generally reports of seeing her at a distance, a woman in white standing on the beach, a glimpse of her near the state park, on the highway, or in the parking lot of a motel. Contact isn't sustained. The witness doesn't see Ginny's eyes. After the publication of the first edition of our book, we were contacted by many with personal stories of their own sightings of Ginny. An email from Ellen Rafferty of Chicago stood out, and we reached out to her for more. She claims that she was vacationing in the area with her family in 2019, staying in a rented home on the lake when Jenny knocked on her door. Rick and the kids had driven out to see a movie. It was one of those sci-fi action hero things, and I'm not really into that, you know? So I decided to stay in, have a quiet night to myself. It was around 10 when she knocked on the door. Scared the hell out of me. Of course I let her in. How could I not? I didn't know anything about ghosts. I just saw this dripping wet girl. This kid who needed help. She never said a word. Just looked at me with these big, dark eyes that seemed to see and not see me. Even as I was babbling my head off at her, saying, Oh my God, what happened? And grabbing her a blanket. She was wearing a skimpy white dress, sleeveless. Too cold for the weather, even if she weren't also soaking wet. She was shaking, and her skin was so pale it was blue. She sat on the couch like I told her to, with my blanket wrapped around her. I said I would grab some dry clothes of mine for her to wear, but when I came back from the bedroom, she was gone. I still think of her. My family came home and we called the cops to report a girl in need of help, but of course they never found her, and there were no reports of anyone missing or hurt that night. Knowing what I do now, I'm glad I didn't touch her. I guess some part of me knew not to. But oh, she was lonely and cold. I could feel it. I really could. There was just cold and desperation coming off of her, like hunger. I wanted to comfort her. I didn't touch her, but I wanted to, to wrap that blanket around her myself, hug her in it, towel her off, make sure she was dry and warm, give her a hot cup of tea. I know that she's dangerous. I even knew it that night, but I still feel for her. I wish she were okay. From Haunted Tales and Legends of Lake Michigan's Shores, updated 10th Anniversary Edition, Storm Bay Press. Jenny haunts the area for only a few weeks of early spring, that liminal time when flowers bloom and songbirds have returned, but winter's bite still lingers. She returns like an ephemeral wildflower of the woods, a brief vision of white, here and gone before most can even notice. Anna puts down her copy of Haunted Tales. She counts off the days left. She's felt Jenny's silent call every night, that screaming need, her hammering on doors that don't open, on empty vacation rentals and homes that ignore her, cars that drive past. Anna's dreams now are always of blackness and cold water. It's almost a relief. At least she's sleeping again each night. The cold that she feels, it isn't all her own.
She normally leaves the porch light off, letting it turn on only in response to motion. But tonight, she deliberately switches the light on. It's a sign that someone's home. A welcome. A beacon. She leaves all the lights on in her house. When Jenny comes, Anna has the thick blanket ready. She doesn't need to take her eyes off the ghost. I'm sorry, she told her husband when he first caught her flu, when it was still just a flu. Sorry, when he was shaking with chills and she was the one holding him and keeping him warm. I'm sorry, the doctor said. I'm sorry, people told her after he died. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry for your loss. Her throat was blocked. She couldn't speak. She could hardly look Brian's family in the eye. Afterwards, Brian's sister kept calling her, texting her, checking up on her, asking if she wanted to get together for a coffee or lunch. Anna came up with excuses, or didn't answer at all. Finally, she fled. It's a rare complication, the doctor told her. There were so many doctors at the end, but this one seemed to be the main one, the one in charge. He said, many wrong things had to happen in just the wrong way. I'm sorry. Jenny steps in, and she's what Anna remembers. A thin white girl with long black hair down her back. Blue lips and huge eyes, dripping with water. Anna gets her wrapped up in a thick blanket, not touching her directly. She hands her a cup of hot tea. Jenny sits on the couch, sipping, her eyes staring over the rim of the cup, hungry and dark. She puts down the cup. I'm still cold, she says plaintively. Her voice is a little girl's, a lost little girl. I know, Anna says. Why did she let Jenny in? Did she really think she could warm her, comfort her, do what the woman in her book could not? Cold radiates from the ghost, the chilling atmosphere from an entire planet of winter. Jenny stands up, clutching the blanket around her. She takes a step toward where Anna is standing. I'm still cold, she repeats, and her eyes lock on Anna's, pleading. Anna doesn't move. Is this how Jenny ensnared boys and men over the years? Not just seducing with beauty, which the girl certainly has, but with an appeal to compassion, to human warmth to the vanity of thinking you could save someone else. She could be Anna's daughter if she and Brian had had a daughter. She's the right age. She even has Anna's coloring, the dark hair and dark eyes. I'm sorry, Anna says, as the girl takes another step. Water drips to the floor, and Anna smells lake water. It's not vengeance. Anna knows that in her bones. Jenny has never meant to take revenge, to hurt anyone. She's just seeking warmth in the easiest way she can. Anna understands. She knows what it's like to contain a frozen sea within, to starve for human touch, to crave it so badly she thinks she'll go mad, to yearn for just a simple brush of fingertips, an exhalation of breath, a heartbeat near hers, to live off the memory of past warmth. Jenny's eyebrows lift slightly. You're cold like me. She tells Anna. Yes, Anna says. 
like and not alike. Anna's body still holds its human warmth, but oh, she's cold, and her cold is nothing to Ginny's. Anna deserves to be cold. She deserves it. And Ginny's is far greater than Anna can carry on her own. Ginny's is an endless tundra of cold, a fathomless lake, vast and measurable. Ginny's cold can swallow Anna whole. This is what Anna wants. This is why she turned on the porch light, why she opened the door. She'd thought she was just reaching out, that she didn't want to be alone, and she doesn't. What she wants, she understands now, is to join Ginny's cold, to disappear in it, to merge into that endless tundra, melt into her dark lake, to join the other souls Ginny swallowed, to lose herself among them, to no longer be herself, no longer alone with the cold, bearing it all on her own. She reaches out for the shivering ghost girl. She steps into her eager embrace. That was The Cold Inside by Vanessa Fogg. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or better yet, share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com, on blue sky at metaphoricist.bsky.social, or on Mastodon at metaphoricist at writing.exchange. 